Epilogue of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 16 Epilogue We passed down the muddy waters of the Rangoon River. The flat green shores grew gray with distance, and Burma faded out of sight. Those who like may stop here. That is the end of Burma, but to me, as a kind of epilogue, a softening of the hard parting, came Ceylon, with its other interests and other beauties. This chapter may quite well be skipped, but if it is, only to heighten the picture that has gone before, by comparison and contrast, I put it in. My original impressions of Colombo were not dimmed on return. Happy he who can carry the memory of it with him as his first sight of an eastern city. I spent but one night here this time, going up country the next day to stay with the lady who had come out on the Cheshire with me from England. She had written to invite me while I was in Burma, so when I landed on a Monday I sent a wire saying I would turn up the next day. The address was Musagala Matali, and in the innocence of my heart I imagined that Musagala was the name of a house in Matali. Little did I wot of the habitats of tea-planters. We left Colombo at 7 a.m. and arrived at Matali after changing at Candy about 12.30 midday. I inquired of the station-master the whereabouts of Musagala, and received the rather disquieting reply, Ten miles away. Five you can drive, but five you must walk. Walk? Surely I can get a bullock-cart. No bullock-cart goes there. It is up a mountain. I was assured. But, the man added as an afterthought, if your friend knows you are coming, perhaps she will send down coolies to carry you up. This prospect seemed, on the whole, one degree worse than the first. But the box, I feebly asked. Oh, they carry that. Carry anything, he replied. I went over to the rest-house, which I found a much more furnished place than its counterpart, the Dak Bungalow of Burma, and had lunch and rested, and told Chenna to transfer what I should want for the night from my box into a Japanese basket, and ordered a trap. Coming from Burma, everything in Ceylon strikes one as much civilized. There are good roads all over, quite fit for bicycling or motoring. The railway porters wear dark blue uniforms, trousers, and jacket with round caps. If they do have bare feet and little chignons sticking out behind their heads, that does not detract from the respectability of their appearance. English is spoken everywhere. Some of the rest houses are almost like hotels, with copies of the spectator on the table, not much older than the copies one finds in seaside hotels in England. There are pictures on the walls and wallpaper. I was quite embarrassed at my first entrance into one of this sort, and thought I must have got into a private house by mistake. The rest house at Matali is not quite of this magnificent type, but it is well kept. A very decent trap, drawn by a horse which looked like a giraffe to my eyes, accustomed to the ponies of Burma, appeared according to order, and we started off leaving the heavy luggage at the station. I had been told much of the beauty of Ceylon, and certainly had seen the most wonderful ranges of hills coming up from Colombo. For most of the way, the railway runs along a ledge 
or terrace hewn out of the side of the hill, with great valleys and glorious blue heights to see in all directions. The line winds about, climbing ever higher and higher, so you get one point of view after another. The wildflowers, too, are very pretty. The leopard's bane, the yellow daisy I had seen in Burma, grew in profusion, and a little vermilion flower called the lantana, which has a berry not unlike a blackberry, was a perfect weed. There was a dining car on the train, too, where one could get a quite decent lunch, a vast improvement on the hurried meal at the stopping places in Burma. Many of the railway stations were quite English in their neatness, with English flowers growing in them. In one I saw petunias, heliotrope, roses, larkspur, lupins, peonies, and many other English flowers all growing together. But the fine jungle, the tropical plants, the tree ferns I had expected, of these I saw nothing. The road we went on to Musagala was exceptionally good and not very hilly. We had to stop to pay at a toll bar halfway. Then we arrived, after passing the fifth mile-post, at a place where a winding path led away amid trees, and pointing with his whip to a high hill blew in the distance, the native driver informed me, "'That's where you go.' No sign of a coolie was there. Evidently my telegram had not been received, or my friends were away. The latter might well be the case, for it was about six weeks since they had sent me the invitation, and I had not been able to find out at the post-office in Metali if they were at home. "'Can you get a coolie?' I asked the driver. He seemed to think so, and went to a few rough huts a little further on, returning presently with the lean lithe lad about sixteen. "'Can he carry all those things up there?' I asked, looking at the basket, which was of a good size my bundle of rugs, and my boy's bundle, as well as my handbag. I was assured that the whole was nothing. So we started. The coolie went first, with most of the things on his head, walking with an elastic step, and the boy followed with my handbag. I brought up the rear. We had not gone many yards before the driver ran frantically after us, crying out, "'Lady, lady, there's a river to cross. You have to take off your—' Words failed him." I inquired if we should meet any lions and tigers on the road, and whether it would not be wiser to take a gun, and the man went back grinning. We soon encountered that river. It was not very formidable, as there had not been much rain recently. The boy carried my shoes and stockings and went first, to prove the dangers of the ford. When I saw the water did not reach his knees, I followed. Then we began our climb. It was all uphill and as it was about three in the afternoon, that kind of entertainment was not precisely what one would have chosen. The perspiration streamed down my neck so continuously that at last I ceased to trouble about it. After walking what seemed an immense distance, having risen higher and higher, so that the hills crossed the valley, opened out, and gave us gracious views, I thought of resting, and was going to sit on a convenient lump of dried mud, when the boy stopped me hastily, telling me it was an ant's nest. I gingerly selected a likely log, and a snake glided out from under it. After this I stood, but told the boy to inquire if we were about halfway. He asked the coolie, who had no word of English, and the answer was, "'Come very little way, missy. Got great deal much more way to go.' I put my back into it and went on. We came presently to a clearing, and I recognized the low-growing, ugly tea-scrub, though I had never seen it before. 
Little paths, always steep and always stony, wound zigzag through it. We climbed and climbed throughout the afternoon. At that time I did not recognize the other products of the estate. The many-fingered leaves of the dainty young rubber trees, or the great bulbs of the cocoa plants. I had these pointed out to me afterwards. Rubber growing is spreading extensively in Ceylon, often in conjunction with tea, and many planters grow a little of the most things. Pepper, arica, cardamoms, and coffee as well. Every now and then I called a halt and rested a while and for the most part the springy young thing who carried my baggage stood, meantime disdaining to put down his load. Luckily a cloud or two now and then veiled the sun, and as we climbed the views were so stupendous that I enjoyed myself extremely. Still we went on, until when we stopped for a minute even the coolie was tired and lay down on the path beside the boy, a little higher up than I was. I could hear their voices talking gently, and I nearly went to sleep. But darker it grew and darker, and at last a few drops of rain began to fall. It would be too bad to get wet here in a country where one imagined that fear to be eliminated, at least, from the evils one had to encounter. So we moved upwards once more. At length it seemed to me we could not go much higher, or we should be over the top of the mountain and down the other side. Then the coolie said something, and the boy interrupted. "'Says he don't know where he is, Missy.' I contemplated eating the last bit of chocolate I had in my bag before I laid down to spend the night on the tea-scrub, but I said, "'Put down the things.' They put them down obediently in the middle of the path. "'Now, go and find out, both of you.' And they departed in different directions. They returned presently, and pointing to a cliff-like height overhead, said it was up there. So we climbed again. A last stiff struggle— and came out to a clearing, with a lawn of beautiful emerald green turf, covered with huge scarlet cannas and poinsettias, in the midst of which was set a bungalow. My host, or so I guessed him to be, was hastily nailing up the window curtains in my room, and he shouted out to his wife, Here's a good lady, and she's walked, in a tone which sufficiently appraised the value of my feet. They had got my telegram half an hour before, as they sent a peon down for letters each day, and he had brought it up with him. On receipt of it, a native had been sent flying down the hill with a bamboo chair to carry me up, but as he had crashed straightway, and we had mostly followed the paths, he had missed us. When I saw the bamboo chair, I was not sorry. I was quite fresh, and the air at that height was so beautiful that one could not be long tired. But I was glad I was under shelter, for presently down came the rain, as I had never heard it before, and ceased not the whole of the evening. I thought I knew something about rain, having travelled extensively in Scotland, but I felt that all I had met previously had been but a drizzle. Here it was solid. The blue views brightened the sunshine next morning, and the peeps between a foreground of royal red cannas were as fine as anything I had seen, and the whole place had a most invigorating atmosphere. When my time came to go, I rode down the precipitous descent with regret, and as I had found that an old friend lived in Metali, I stayed a night with her before going on to Nuwara Ilia, pronounced for some inexplicable reason, Neuralia. This section of the line I was disappointed with. It may once have been magnificent, 
but the monotonous rows of tea scrub running over every height detract much from the beauty of contour. Close to Nuwara Ilia is a mighty hill still covered with the primitive jungle, which shows you what the country must have been at one time. Nuwara Ilia is very like some parts of Scotland, and it may be charming to live in, but from the point of view of one eager for new sensations, it is desperately uninteresting, being entirely English. When I left, I spent a night at the Peridinia Rest House near Candy, and inspected the famous botanical gardens. I visited Candy the next morning, but found little to see, and finally met the two friends with whom I was going to leave Chenaswamy at a junction called by the beautiful name of Polgawela, and went with them to the most intensely interesting spot in Ceylon, the buried city of Andrahapura. Northward we traveled up the new single line recently made, on and on through miles of monotonous flat country, sometimes wide and open, with gleaming low-lying reaches of water, at others closely hemmed in by wild jungle growth. The dusk came on, and the stars came out. At length, in the sweet-scented warmth of a glorious night, we pulled up at nine o'clock at the small station where we were to get out. We hired a tiny pony-cart, driven by a scantily clothed man with a very honest expression, and all crammed in, leaving the boy to bring the things on to the rest-house by bullock-cart. I shall never forget that drive. The warmth of the evening was perfect, not too oppressive. The stars gleamed brilliantly through the feathery trees that overhung the road, and the fireflies, shining like points of electric light, danced beside us. At length, high up, barring the way as it seemed, seen between the avenue of trees, rose a mighty conical hill overgrown with vegetation and outlined on the blueness of the moonlit sky. It was one of the monuments of a bygone age that we had come to see. We could hardly believe that this was really the work of a man's hands and not a natural hill. As it turned out to be almost outside the gates of the rest house, it was the one of all the monuments we grew to know and loved the best. Imagine a symmetrical hill, between two and three hundred feet high, made of solid brick, and so old that the trees and grass and soil have overlaid it like jungle. The form of it is said to be as a bubble of water resting on a liquid surface. This is the famous Ruinvelli Dagaba, built by King Dutu Jimini, about B.C. 160, and there, not far from it, lies the uptilted slab of granite on which the dying king was laid, so that his closing eyes might light their last on his proudest monument. It is quite impossible to describe the wonders of this city of seventy kings. The best of it is one is free to wander anywhere. There are few European visitors. The place is unspoiled by guides and crowds. The ruins cover acres and acres of ground. There are several Dagobas, scattered at various distances resembling Rouen Valley in form, and most of them have, as it has, a flat causeway of hewn granite blocks, wide enough for six elephants to walk abreast, running around them. Stretches of park-like ground covered with short grass lie near, and in the glorious light of a tropical moon we three linked arms and wandered over the warm turf amid the shadows of the trees. We were, I must confess, terribly afraid of snakes, but 
the event justified the risk. We passed on to a smaller Dagobah, glistening like marble in the moonlight. This is Thuparama, the oldest of all the monuments. It was built in B.C. 307 to enshrine the right jaw of the Buddha, which, descending from the skies, placed itself upon the crown of the monarch's head. In spite of the signal relic, Thuparama is not so impressive as the others, being so much smaller, more of the type of the ordinary Burmese pagoda. It is coated by chunam, a kind of white cement, and certainly in the moonlight this adds greatly to its charm. On every side lie fallen or upright columns of granite, with carved capitals, as fresh as when they were done two thousand years ago. In the daylight we hired the small pony-cart, which had brought us from the station, and drove from one mighty site to another. We visited Jetawarana, a stupendous pile of masonry, clothed like Ruan Valley, with a growth of vegetation, which was here and there broken from its root-hold and fallen, showing layers upon layers of red brick. At the summit, still erect in its hoary age, is a pointing finger in the shape of a brickwork tower. The platform around the base of the Dagobah is overgrown with trees and bushes, which have burst up between the joints of the stonework. Little paths run here and there among them. Birds sing sweetly, and butterflies with bodies almost as big as birds flutter gaily in the sunshine. Bits of ruined capitals and other carving lie about half buried in the tangle of rank-growing weed and bush. But we did not see only Dagobahs. We saw also tanks, like Roman baths, with steps descending into them, having gray shadows on their carved balustrades, and lying deserted save for a tiny yellow-backed tortoise which walked away with dignity into the grass. We saw wide reaches of water, like inland seas, edged with green mounds or buns, all artificial. We saw one thousand six hundred hewn columns, set so thickly that hardly had one room to pass between. These were once the famous brazen palace, where nine roofs, covered with brazen tiles, had towered toward the burning sky. We saw most wonderful of all the sacred bow-tree grown, so tradition says, from a branch of the sacred bow-tree under which Lord Buddha received revelation brought from India by a princess, and planted in B.C. 245, the oldest historical tree in the world, and, as the legend said, always green, never growing or decaying. Whatever its origin, the copious references to it in chronicles of many centuries give it a right to an indisputable claim of over two thousand years of age. It was evening time when we approached. The entrance is by granite steps, polished by the bare feet of countless generations, and carved with wonderful figures of elephants and horses in procession round what is called the moonstone, or projecting slab, before the actual steps. Outside men sat and sold sweet flowers to be offered in reverence, arranged in little cardboard saucers, so that they look like one great blossom, was the central pink lotus, with an array of white frangipani around. The low wall, black-red with age, that runs up the first court, is guarded by tall growing palms. Up through the broken pavement within spring many small bow-trees, offspring of the parent stem. 
Groups of natives sat around gleaming fires, which caught the bright fabrics of their dress in weird lights. Up yet other steps, all broken and dilapidated, we went, to another terrace, and then above our heads we saw the gnarled and crooked branches of the ancient tree. Very few leaves were there on it, and when one fluttered down a zealous pilgrim hastened to pick it up as a precious relic. They are like the leaves of the balsam poplar, but the terminal spike is much longer. The tree is old and straggly, without grandeur of size or proportion, but encompassed about with the reverence of generations past numbering, and as we stood there overshadowed by those hoary branches, and drank in all the weird beauty of the scene, the warm orange light of the sunset, against which the line of tall palms showed black, while the monkeys leaped from bough to bough, looking like little black demons, and, as the delicate scents of the floral offerings were wafted around us, and the slow chant of the devotees came to our ears, something of the awe and veneration which inspired the worshippers crept into our hearts. I felt I could not come again the next day, in the full blaze of the blatant sunshine, I must always remember it, always see it, as I saw it then, while the mystery of the evening deepened around it. In comparison with this everything else paled in interest, and it is a fitting end, after a journey amid the ancient civilization of peoples to whom our generations are but as the growth of field-grass, to pause beside the roots of the sacred bow-tree. End of section 16 Epilogue End of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten